Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Casey. And this is Too Much Film School. This week we're going to be talking about the Oscar-nominated movie, The Artist. Set dated. When we say nominated, it's clearly only going to be relevant for the next few weeks. Uh, wins or not, it'll be decided <laughs> by February 26th. We could say uh, Oscar-winning, and then... <laughs> <laughs> Depending on we cut it, but... I, I assume it'll win at least one of the 15 Oscars that it's go. nominated for, so... Alright, I'm going with it. There's a plan, <laughs> i Oscar-winning... Uh, the artist. Um, the Oscars has not occurred yet at our having recorded this. People of the future, <laughs> tell us what happens. Uh, unless the Mayans kill us all, you know, between now and the Oscars. I, I hear, I've heard that's going to happen. Yeah, I think it's supposed to happen in October or something. I don't actually. No, it's no. just minutia. We cut this part. <laughs> Wait, if we're cutting minutia, then <laughs> this whole podcast is going to be about two minutes long. <clears throat> Whether it'll win or not, the movie's garnered a lot of Oscar attention uh, for being a silent film. A love note to Hollywood and its golden age. Right. Uh, and, you know, the Oscars are by Hollywood for Hollywood, and this film is clearly for Hollywood. It couldn't uh, be more oscar baity <laughs> right. if it tried. And I don't know that it'll get have widespread appeal across the country. I think it comes from a French director... And there's a long history of France's love for film. Trying to they think. invented it. I mean, the Lumiere brothers were there French. Um, uh, that's not the candelabra from Beauty and the Beast. The, there was actually oh, some guy. Okay, no, I was confused. <laughs> some of our listeners might might be wondering. I do. I always found that amusing. That like it's an art form that is based on on recording light and then projecting light and and. Uh, the dude's names were actually Lumiere. Like, it would be like if the inventor of the automobile was, like, James Wheel or something. Yeah. Uh, or uh, John Crapper. That's it's also true. Toilet. Is that an actual... Is that real? I, I have heard that many I've times to the point where it's real enough. I'm sure it's in Wikipedia. <laughs> You're just going to assume that it's correct. No, let's not look it up. Let's just believe <laughs> yeah, the urban That is budget. easier for me. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, there's a couple of surprises. I, most of the time, I think I don't. I'm not too worried about spoilers. But I feel like there's there's a couple of points that if you haven't seen this film and you plan on it, you might not want to listen to this podcast until you've seen it. I agree. They're big impact moments. They kind of play against your expectations. So if we gave them away, they wouldn't have as much impact. It's not like huge reveals or twist endings or anything. It's just it's just a surprise when right. you suddenly start hearing sounds. <laughs> so that was the point before which you should have stopped listening the style is certainly fun the black and white academy ratio you know three by four instead of widescreen um the the lack of sound for the majority of it until uh, except for the nightmare sequence in the very end uh all of that and they they do an interesting job of mimicking that style of long takes and uh, sort of very stagey you know compositions Right. Um, and, and yet it's, uh, and it's, it's not just, a lot of movies try to be period in their costume and, uh, you know, the, the locations and stuff, but the shooting style is very modern and we, because our, we just have the natural inclination to cut to close-ups and, and, and cut very rapidly and, and stuff like that. And, uh, this film doesn't fall for that, doesn't fall in that trap. Actually, I was going to disagree with you there because I feel from the opening that a lot of the shots feel more like 1930s uh, and it's it starts in 1927 and I remember looking at that going oh well that would still be you know Charlie Chaplin days or they had the jazz singer and talkies by that point 
uh, they were starting at the, at the beginning of this movie, but the first one was already out. But the, the shots were still kind of locked off, wider shots, uh, longer takes like you were talking about. And this movie started with some of those, but had tracking shots, had pans, and had close-ups that I felt were more modern than the year they started in. It felt like it was... It felt more 30s, like the 30s, so, yeah. Where, and a lot of things happened then. They came up with dollies, and um, the lenses became faster. A right, lot of, they, they had dollies uh, through the teens and 20s, and then they had to stop using them because it was too heavy to move a film camera with the... the the silencing blimp around it that it, that interfered with recording. So the camera started to be locked off for a period of years after the invention of sound. And they, and this film never went through the locked off. There was a lot of camera movement that would not have been possible in the earliest days of, of sound. Right. So it's, I think the it's sort of a mixture. interesting. They maybe took the average of the years. It yeah. <laughs> so, and just said the whole movie's going to be in this. We're not going to, change and through the years introduced now we're doing a, a zoom because the lenses you know <laughs> came out this year right it, they're not going that chronological which i don't think they should have but i remember it struck me in the uh, actually opening when they're watching the movie the russian uh affair they were all german affair and, no oh, i believe first? the first film was the russian affair okay. and the one that he's making where he meets the girl is okay. the german affair when they're watching the when they're watching the foreign affair, yeah. <laughs> when they're watching a Russian affair, the, the screening that he's uh, premiering at the beginning of the movie, I think even the movie they're watching on screen, I remember thinking that's not really looking period appropriate. They had a lot of really long depth of field and kind of these wide shots that whole had a lot in the background and made me feel like almost it was digital what they were watching on the screen, and even his escape. They, I think they fly off in a small plane, and there's a big shot of the fields around them it just didn't feel like something they would have had in the 20s yeah i guess i uh i, th I think you're, i i fell for the uh it's sort of the average of the late right. 20s and early 30s even i think him in the tuxedo and um he was being tortured by what looked like russians i was like oh i didn't think we started casting russians as the bad guys until I, yeah later. i don't think they would have been the bad guys until after until post-war yeah so it I remember thinking, huh, usually it was like, I don't know, Moon Emperor Ming, or, you know, there was like an anti-Orientalism, I think, in the 20s, or some things, they, I think they didn't like communists, for, there was an, a Red Scare in the teens, and uh, turn of the century through the teens, anti-communism sent, sentiment really was, came in vogue several times throughout the early 1900s, so maybe it was part of that. Yeah, but you're right. I think it's still a sort of an odd choice. I wonder if maybe they, they considered the, like you said, the Ming the Merciless or something like that and decided it, it would come across as racist now, whereas putting Russians as bad guys, as Always we saw works. in Mission Impossible 4, <laughs> like it's still fine to, to make uh, Russians the bad guys. Right. It was, I think, even harder to get into for the silent nature of it because we're watching... Then be silent, then we cut out of the movie. And I was like, oh, now they're going to at least start making sounds or something, and maybe they just won't talk. Uh, so that transition, I was like, nope, it's still silent. They're all going to be quiet. So I think just getting into this, even though I knew it was a silent movie going in, it still felt foreign enough to me that the first probably 20 minutes, I was like, this is awkward. I was actually a little thrown off by the use of inner titles. They have inner titles uh, for certain plot-important dialogue. Uh, and then other times it's just the characters smiling and, and laughing or whatever sort of conveys the point. But occasionally 
uh, th- there'd be a joke where like John Goodman yells at the girl to get the fuck off the sets. And it's only funny because we can read his lips and we, right. we know the words, but that's for the English speaking audience. Like how does that joke, that joke just disappears for, I mean, it's made by, by a French filmmaker and, and the two lead actors are French. Like, and any other, you know, territory is not going to, Get I don't that think joke? that yeah. the joke was worth enough to try and put in an inner title for it, and I don't think... Well, no, the joke is only funny by the fact that there is no inner title. It's funny because we process it and we right. put it together, but no other, if you don't speak English, then that doesn't happen for you. I um, think this movie's made for Hollywood people by Hollywood. <laughs> that's not, true. Not by Hollywood people, but uh, again, as a loving homage, I think it's meant to be in English, and inner titles are not subtitles. They're not meant to uh, convey to everyone what's going on there. It's, it's true. In, in the original silent era, they didn't put inner titles for everything. Right, and I think... important points. Although I feel like there's more inner titles in, like, a Charlie Chaplin movie than this movie had. That's because this movie had dialogue where Charlie Chaplin movies... Silent movies actually avoided dialogue a lot more than this. This would have people talking, and the inner titles only played for, like you said, plot important points, but there were a lot of things where... You know what they're saying because of their body action. You're, they're, right. He's saying, get the fuck off the set. He's pointing off the set, and he clearly is mad at her. So you're like, and there was an inner title for you're fired, yeah. I think, before that. So you understand without them having to spell it out or cut away. Whereas Charlie Chaplin, you know, he would shrug his shoulders a lot, and they would just point at the food he's eating and then point their hand. And you're like, oh, he's asking them to pay them. You know, it's a lot more pantomiming. The conceit of this was... There are these people are existing in the real world, and we're just not recording the audio. Right. Whereas in a Charlie Chaplin film, they would, like you said, there would be pantomime. Exactly, and, and, and people would be behaving in ways that were not natural. And they even express that in the movie. Pepe mocks the silent film actors for mugging for the camera and, you know, just hamming it up in the acting way because they are pantomiming. There were other points where, again, we could read the lips, and they didn't subtitle it because they. Ex- think you can understand from the action so right it's interesting uh that most of the cast is american and and very recognizable americans except for the two main characters right. these french actors that i've never seen before and maybe i should have but uh, i don't know that you should have and i actually found it refreshing that they were not recognizable and it was a little distracting to see so many kind of recognizable supporting characters in the background like james cromwell or, yeah, what, what does James Cromwell have gambling debts or something? Yeah. Like he sh- he deserves a better part than that. Like John Goodman was playing every John Goodman part that he's ever right. played, and it, he's perfect in it. And I always forget how much I like John Goodman. Like if you ask me who my favorite actor was, like he would not be on the list at all. Yet for some reason, like every time I see him, he's just the best thing in any given movie. Like he is really good and is used well in all the Coen brother movies. He always comes up with a great part. We do often see him as a, as a rough businessman who's sort of angry at everybody. Um, and, and he does great at that. Like, somehow it's not like, oh, here's another... Yeah, it's John not cliche. Goodman. He fills it out. Yeah, well. he, he does a great job. Uh, James Cromwell was great in this movie, but it, it seemed like too small a part for James Cromwell. Well, speaking of which, Malcolm McDowell is sitting in a chair next to her at the extras, and I literally thought to myself... And James Cromwell, his first shot is right before that, where he drives him to the set, or to the studio. And I thought, wouldn't that be hilarious if Malcolm McDowell and James Cromwell like, didn't have any other shots? It was just one <laughs> shot, and you would go, why are they there? And Malcolm McDowell didn't. Yeah, he that was, never comes back. And I was like, okay. His whole scene was even confusing, because I was like, does he recognize her? Or is he like, yeah, you do kind of look like her. Like, Right. It was not... 
it was kind of humorous, and I even thought it would be funny if they did it, and yet now I'm complaining that it was distracting. <laughs> I could have used of, more Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, because James Cromwell's been around forever. He's looking a bit old, and I think when he picks him up uh, from the bar, he's passed out and throws him in his bed, I was like, that's a stunt double. James Cromwell <laughs> is very old. But then I also thought, he's always been old. Like, the first time I ever saw him, probably 20-some-odd years ago, he looked exactly like he does now, just a little more fuller in the cheeks. He's like... Patrick Stewart. <laughs> he has looked exactly like that since the late 70s. So there's just some actors and people that you're like, were you born old? I think uh, Michael Chiklis falls into that category. Okay. <laughs> but Michael Chiklis, I think, was born like 45. <laughs> That's James, true. James Cromwell and Patrick Stewart were born in their late 50s, early 60s. <laughs> the back. only other actor that, that, that doesn't stand out for me is uh, the main... Uh, the, the, his co-star from the silent films who looks exactly like Lena Lamont from, uh, singing in the rain. Right. A lot of points in this hit up the same singing in the rain. And the first was when he's at the premiere, it's like the second shot and it shows backstage and the blonde curly haired woman is sitting next to John Goodman. And I'm like, is that just Lena Lamont? Like did this they, exact did, same Did they rotoscope her out and yeah. make it black and white? Like, is she a time traveler? Like, is she a time lord? And then she's even upset with him off stage, and then in the same way that they were. Yeah, in and they even then later on do a sound test with her reading Shakespeare, and it's a sound test, and he's saying how it's a joke and looks ridiculous. Except no one else thinks it's ridiculous. So I was wondering, does she have an annoying voice? Right, I can't I tell. I thought that plot point was going to come up because of singing in the rain, and yet we can't hear. It. I thought that sound test was also going to be the first point we hear dialogue. I was like, oh, they're going to... And then when it was silent, I was like, oh, wow, okay. No, apparently they can hear things being said in the movie over there, but we can't. So we have no idea if she was good or bad. Right. If she was correct or and not. And I was projecting, you know, <laughs> the singing in the rain voice on that. The, now that you mention it, it does feel like this movie was like a weird cross between singing in the rain and Sunset Boulevard. Like, yeah. with like how exactly. dark it gets. There was also, um, I think the other major movie that feels like is blended into this is A Star is Born, uh, which has been made like three different times with Judy Garland and I think... It's you know. been made once and then remade shittily a couple of okay. times. <laughs> Even without the same name. I think yeah. the storyline has just come up again and again and here it is again. It sort of seems like a mashup, but the lead actor is sort of compelling enough in, in an unusual way uh, that it sort of works and then it because it goes into such a dark place like it doesn't feel like it's uh, a rehash of things that I've seen before. To be honest, the the plot of this movie does not seem to be the point. The point is the style and the, the sort of feeling that you get out of it is, is really what they're trying to get us to And I think that feel. part of the homage of this is that really the performances carry you through a lot of it and they're showing that kind of what the message of the movie is that silent film acting or acting without words can still be compelling and this movie is showing that as well as it being part of the plot or storyline. Jean Desjardins being nominated for Best Actor is fitting because they're taking away one of the main parts that modern actors use, and he's just supposed to rely on acting without words or voice. And at the beginning of the film, again, I felt it hard to get into, and I thought even when he wasn't the on-screen character, the mugging and everything was a bit over the top and ham-handed, even for pantomime or the period. But by the end, when it does get very dark, I think that he drew the viewer in and 
carried that kind of weight believably. Yeah, I mean, you really did. There was a genuine question of whether he was going to shoot himself. The, the only reason I think that I knew that he wasn't going to is because everything I'd heard about this movie was how, what a joy it was and all there that. There is that. And if he had shot himself, I'd be like, I don't know if that's, that would have happened. Triumph like, of life. Yeah, like, it, it was clear that he, but if I had gone into this movie cold, I would have been seriously like, are, is that how this movie is? Yeah. Is he going to shoot uh, himself was, and the only sound we hear is the gunshot? It was very believable. And even from the point where his life gets sad, like, before he had the gun, or even when he was in his apartment watching his old movies, I was like, at what point are we? is he going to maybe kill himself? And he's, <laughs> he's looking at the films, and he's throwing them all around. I'm like, that stuff's very flammable, you know. And I thought it was going to be a, he drinks himself into a stupor and then drops a cigarette on it. But no, he... He's well aware that they're flammable. <laughs> yeah, going to... Uh, That's his plan. Yeah. Uh, he lights everything up. So it certainly goes to a dark place. But in the beginning, I didn't have the problem with the beginning that you had. I, I was into it because it was so... the style. I often enjoy a film that ha that is stylistically different. The fact that they were doing something different like hooked me, even though I didn't necessarily buy the characters right away. Uh, once I got it, I was able to go smoothly from oh, this is a cool style, to, oh, I'm actually sort of interested in what the characters are doing. Um, and so there was no point where they really lost me. Uh, so... Uh... The end. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they lost me so much as I might have taken myself out of the movie because I was m looking for things to be congruent in the style and acting. And some of the things were very 1920s, like the acting and even their first meeting where he's mugging for the press cameras and then she gets through the line and, uh, you know, is charming and adorable and, like, you do think, oh, that is very cute and you kind of fall in love with her. But some of the stuff with, like, his wife and their relationship was very stilted and so I thought, they would be saying something here. Right. They make a point of it and actually some of the uh, more humorous notes are in the movie they keep asking him to speak or talk like in the Russian, the movie, in the movie that he's premiering, the Russians are torturing him and keep yelling, speak. And he says, I'll never talk, even though they're electrocuting him. And I was like, oh, it's because it's, it's a silent, silent film. Movie. But it comes up a lot later where his wife comes in and they're having a Why won't you talk to me? Yeah. And she says, we need to talk. And she says, I'm not happy. Why won't you talk to me? And he just looks sullen and yeah. looks off. His life is falling apart. He's lost all his money and trying to make a movie. So I felt like he kind of had motivation for being depressed, but it was interesting choice of words. They also had, uh, he had in the background of his study, a hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil monkeys. Yeah. And those come up again. So there were playful little elements like that. If this film had been made in 1926 or 27, they wouldn't have pointed out, by the way, silence. <laughs> we're not Like talking. every other movie that's being right. made right now. Also breathing air. <laughs> the, uh, but uh, on the subject of the wife, since you brought her up, that subplot, I hated. Really? Every Every movie where the obstacle to the main couple getting together uh, is that one of them is married or, or dating someone always annoys the crap out of me. Because there, there are two things that, that, occur, that happen when you have that plot. One, uh, either that the other person has to be a terrible person, right. in which case, uh, why did you marry them? 
you're you have a, yeah. you're a poor judge of character, or you're uh, you know you can't commit to someone and you you know you break it off. Like if you're gonna cheat on your wife now, uh, get married, Peppy. Twelve years from now, you're gonna break up with her and marry some other young actress. Like, well, the thing is, they do get older. I mean, <laughs> I thought I literally was watching this movie and thought Naomi Watts has not aged well, <laughs> but it was Penelope Ann Miller as his wife, and I think they made her like a point of her aging her up. So yeah, that, which. I was in the back of my mind. She is that actress is actually twelve years older than Peppy, and right. so it really felt like just a guy like you know trading a forty year old for two twenties. Like I <laughs> did not uh, have as much of a problem with him because I, they have an initial flirtation, and she uh, goes variety runs the story of who's that girl and what's their relationship. His wife is upset about it, but at that point he's actually totally innocent, and so he hasn't done anything. It was just the papers playing it up. Then when he sees but her again, he does not. The natural reaction is like, "Oh, that's that silly old thing." It's the reaction is, "Oh, hey, wife. look, there's I'm on the cover of a magazine uh, kissing another woman, but nothing happened." Like you, you sit there explain and explain that. very good. You like you don't just laugh at this. You talk about it, right? Exactly. It's it's a ridiculous reaction, and then later on. Uh, in the dressing room, he's clearly going to bone her, except that his chauffeur walks in. I like, tried to keep there is no my other... urges to say, like, this is going in a very illicit way, because I felt like, again, it was drawn into a classical film, 1920s even, you know, mentality. And so I tried to keep some of that innocence and in maybe what their motivations were, even though, again, one of his contemporaries would have been Charlie Chaplin, who I believe married a 12-year-old because he got her pregnant. <laughs> Again, with her going in there, I thought, you know, he's an actor, and I know even at that time that actors got, did think, thought they could get away with anything. Right. You also, if you take into account the iconography of the time period, they weren't allowed to show sex. So kiss a kiss on screen sort of represented that. Like, anytime well, you, yeah. saw, you see, like, an old movie where the bad guy... Uh, grabs the the heroine and she's like no 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 and and he kisses her on the cheek that's rape like that, right. that is they a nineteen thirties rape or they would pan over to curtains like, or he's something clearly going to cheat on his wife except that James Cromwell walks in see that's the thing is that there is no other interpretation there I interpreted as there was a bit of innocence because he doesn't even kiss her he says oh if you're gonna be an actress you gotta distinguish yourself he gives her like advice as if oh you stop by for distinguish yourself by sleeping in with a, with a major movie star exactly <laughs> you wanna make him in this town don't you <laughs> um, I fought with myself during that scene to uh, keep a sense of innocence because even with the real world Hollywood they were not trying to represent a real world Hollywood view you're right it, this movie did not represent Fatty Arbuckle raping and murdering a woman with a bottle uh, right that but... would have been a different <laughs> movie different turn to take if the main character did that and that's really the end of the first act <laughs> like wow so what a joy <laughs> yeah, but no things small things like he has the dog who's his co-star and trained as his actual pet and partner at home and I was like you know that one like, <laughs> they have a trainer that would take him home but and abuse it horribly right. cuz it was the 1930s. So they didn't have the ASPA right. so watching him. I at some point went even though they're trying to show the behind the scenes Hollywood it's still a fabrication fantasy and version. fantasy version of a cleaned up Hollywood. I I still say he would have kissed her if James Cromwell hadn't walked in. Right. So, James Cromwell is his Jiminy Cricket. We found <laughs> True. Out. Continuing with the wife storyline, like, I, I believe the next beat is basically, and we might see her once or, one or, once or two more times, but ultimately, uh, his movie falls apart and he loses all his money in the stock market, and 
in his depression, he refuses to engage with his wife. Yeah, actually, we see a montage with him and his wife not speaking over breakfast and they're having grapefruit, which I think every time I've seen the 20s or something, people ate grapefruit for breakfast. I, I know it was... I as a kid I know breakfast. people... My parents are old. But. Yeah, I, I have never eaten a grapefruit. I've tasted it. I've never tasted <laughs> grapefruit flavor things, but never have I been served You're half a grapefruit. You're from California. Yeah. Like, don't, right. do you have a grapefruit tree in your backyard? There might have been people with them, and yet... <laughs> But uh, that scene reminded me of Citizen Kane, where Which his I think wife, is intentional. Right, are not talking and I think have grapefruit for breakfast. So it, apparently it was a very period thing. <laughs> not speak to your wife over a long breakfast table. Well, that's why I don't grapefruit. have grapefruit, because I want to have a conversation with my wife. Well, there you go. Yeah, grapefruit is the, just like in the Godfather movies, where oranges mean someone's about to die. Grapefruit means a marriage is about to explode. <laughs> exactly. Based on that, I'm going to cut out the part where I, I mention my parents. Because <laughs> they're still married. But ultimately, uh, his movie falls apart and he loses all his money in the stock market. And in his depression, he refuses to engage with his wife. And his wife is like, I can't. After five years of you making eyes with this other chick and you're not talking to me, it's over. I'm on her side. Like, well, she's right. <laughs> that's the problem. I think I, where I disagree with you again is that he has not been making eyes with Peppy Miller. As far as we can tell, they haven't seen each other since that first movie. And he's just going through a depression because he's lost hundreds of thousands, which represented then multiple millions of dollars in the stock market. He's trying to make his own movie, which is the most stressful thing ever, investing his own money. And she apparently does nothing all day but color in pictures of him. So I thought that he was going through a real depression, you know, even then, or under a lot of stress, and she's just like, are you still thinking about that other woman that there was a picture of you? I'm like, you know, you could you could reach out before it is five years later and say we haven't spoken in forever. They did have... It's pretty clear that he is not paying much attention to his wife at any point during the film. I never show him, I never see him trying to connect with her and her shooting him down. Yeah, so, I think we come in at a point where they're already not on great terms, but he goes through, I didn't feel like it was his relationship with Peppy Miller where he's like, oh, I got to ditch this old bag. <laughs> he is focusing on work and it's just like, you know what? She's cold and distant and I'm over here. He puts his work ahead of his wife. I will she, give you that. She is cold and distant, but that's because he deserves it. <laughs> right. But in no way is it because of the other woman. It's the, his other woman is work. Okay, fine. He doesn't. In any case, I thought his handled, wife is still being wronged and, and, right. Uh, and, and it's his fault that his marriage fell apart. Right, but that does not sour me on his relationship with Peppy Miller because she wasn't the cause of it. Yes, he is bad at being married. Only by his... a coincidence. If James Cole had not walked in, his Peppy Miller would have ruined his marriage. We're not aware of that because he was trying to patch things up. He had James Cromwell buying her jewelry to try and patch things up. Yeah, because he can't connect with his wife on an emotional level, so he buys her expensive things. That's how rich people <laughs> show affection, okay? I would have rather the wife not been there and had some other reason why they couldn't get together at the beginning of the movie. I agree. It, I, I disagree. No. I think that it was one way of handling it. I didn't find it overly offensive because, like I said, it didn't sour the relationship. He clearly is focused so much on work or his own ego because his work is himself that his marriage would have self-destructed without Peppy Miller there. That's the other problem I have with the film is his ego. He's, uh, I mean, like, he's charming. And I understand why everybody sort of likes being around him, but, like, he doesn't do 
anything. To, he doesn't really do anything to deserve all of this praise. Uh, his movies stop making money. That's what happens. Like, yeah, I even thought. You mean you didn't squirrel anything away? You paid for a twenty-four hour chauffeur, <laughs> and it, like, I, well. They do say the stock market crash, so even if he had squirreled stuff away, I guess it's gone. But I still was like, you know, you should have saw this coming. Even in the silent era, they had people fall in and out of fashion. So you should have thought, you know, I better have a backup plan. And he didn't, so I felt like it was his fault and everything as well. He wasn't overly likable, but he does go through some pain and kind of struggle for redemption by the end. For as much as you suggest illicit behavior might have happened. I think the dressing room scene was actually the first point at which I went, you know what, this is really charming and I'm drawn in by both characters because she's doing the pantomiming with the, the jacket and it actually was visually believable. It looked like a not yeah, her she hand. She was really good at yeah. the pant. I was like, did they do a weird effect? But I don't think they did. No, I think it was just her arm through the jacket and I was like, now I think you're adorable and great at acting and this is a viable form of performance. So... That him coming in and really interacting with her was just kind of taut enough with flirtation to where I liked both of them in that scene. It was very well done, but I just kept thinking wife, 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 wife <laughs> the entire time. Gotcha. Like, oh, you're in love with this guy who's married. I think they pulled back enough because when he goes to hold her face and you think they're going to kiss, he says, hey, you know, you need something to distinguish yourself from the other actresses. And he gives her the beauty mark. So but but is, again, that's that's just the, that era's sort of uh, iconography. It's the same thing as Laura McCall says, put your lips together and blow. Like, she doesn't give him a BJ right then, but that's clearly what they're talking about. I think like, you have a very dirty mind. <laughs> Those movies were about whistling. I mean, right? <laughs> People back then had simpler uh, ways of entertaining each other. They are insinuating you, sex. Uh -huh. They don't have sex. They, they were very subtle in that they didn't display sex. But... They were, sex was all over the place. All you think about How do you sex. think we got here if they uh -huh. didn't have sex in the 30s? I'm not saying real people didn't. I'm saying in the movies they were all wholesome. But they had children in the, in the movies. So clearly someone was having sex. I did not see a lot of 1930s movies set in delivery rooms. <laughs> Ascension and stuff like that. You watched the wrong <laughs> Yeah, apparently. So yeah, that scene did draw me in, I think, the most out of anything and start liking the characters more and investing. Some of the things that brought me back out a little later were, A, the film stock kind of looked different. They did shoot it on film. I thought it might be digital because, again, what I saw in that first premiere was... It was a digital projection. A lot of... Yeah, that might have been helping it or hurting it in various scenes, but it felt like it shifted between an actual kind of out of... or softer focus patina of a 1920s movie that you would actually expect to a very clear, very crisp, large depth of field that things like in his home or in her home didn't have the luster that maybe it looked like when they were, you know, on this set. I mean, part of it is just that we have better, technically better cameras and better film, and it's hard to make it look shitty like it right. was in the 20s. But I feel like every at-home editing system has a one-button press that you add and it puts in film grain. And, uh, and like a hair. That yeah, they around. put things in and actually... That was one thing, even the inconsistency of when he's watching his own movies in his apartment, they're actually showing uh, Zorro, and they the did... The Mark of Zorro, yeah. Yeah, they, they did take the Douglas Fairbanks movie and sh just show that and put in one shot of the actor from this movie. They put in a shot of his face, but him watching it, it's 1920s level of uh, the 
frames per second are kind of skipping. Well, that's the, a weird thing because uh, they recorded often at that time period at 18 frames per second, and it's just hard to line that up with our current uh, 30 frames for video or 24 right. frames on, on in projection. They didn't have that standard yet, and so we always watch it sped up. But the projector actually played at 18 frames per second back then, so it shouldn't look sped up to him watching it. Like, that actually minor bit of film history annoyed me. Okay. <laughs> I was like, it should have looked fine. For as much as that was maybe anachronistic, I still wondered why that and even the um, shots we saw for the trailers for uh, Peppy Miller's movies where she's being adorable and turns, right. you know, and they have, like, everyone loves her, why that even looked like a 1920s or period-appropriate film, and yet the premiere we watched with them in the opening looked as crisp and clear as everything in real time, kind of. Yeah, I I sort of forgave the first one because it was the first one. I was like, well, this is what they're doing with it. And then they made the other ones old-timey, and I was like, oh, why yeah. didn't you do that before? Right, and even again, off-screen, some of the shots felt like they had a little more patina, a little more soft focus, a little more Vaseline on the lens. But then we go to parts in their homes or parts where he's like, uncovering the all his artifacts in her house and it feels very crisp and like modern day film stock so a few of those things really popped me out the second thing was actually probably not something that everyone would uh, take away but the shots of los angeles and they, they used a lot of historic locations like they had the bradbury building uh which was one of the more remarkable uh compositions of the, the film i know every a lot of people use the bradbury building with the stairs, it's where they're talking on the steps at the studio. But this wide shot they have of just the stairs zigzagging and everyone rushing, and then it, they talk and she leaves and everyone else leaves and he's kind of alone on the stairs contemplating. I think it was very powerful. Uh, other parts of L.A., though, stuck out a little more. They actually shot, uh, I think, the auction scene at uh, the Wilshire Ebell, where I had my wedding reception. I came down the same steps when <laughs> we came out. So part of the film I liked recognizing classical historical... Yeah, I mean, that was similar to in, when we watched The Muppets. There were several parts where we were like, ah, oh, that's... I know there. Yeah, I drove by when they closed down the road for that. Scene. Right. And in this, it's part of the homage and the loving treatment of Los Angeles, or Hollywood in particular, that they're going to these historic places that are from that period. But some of it also led to confusion that might be unique to, unique to me, where the, she'd be driving through downtown, and I was like, what is she... Where is she even going? His apartment is over by Hancock Park, like, because I recognize the front of it. But I think even just cutting-wise, she's driving around uh, downtown L.A. frantically, and then his apartment has, like, a wide sidewalk and trees in front of it, and I thought... It's clear he's suburban and she's yeah, downtown. Like, no one... Everyone expects downtown places to be, like, high-rises with, you know, squalor or, like, very packed on top of each other. So some of the intercutting there, I think, could cause confusion even if you don't know the exact landmarks. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it sort of felt like, well, what parts of L.A. still look like it's 1930? We've got certain corners of downtown, and right. we've got the sort of Wilshire District, and we've got some of the Beverly Hills has some of the old lampposts, and that and like that's what they use, and they're like, well, we've already used the suburban area. Yeah. Let's go to downtown. She's got to be driving somewhere, and it sort of showed a progression, but yeah, it, it didn't. They, I think it was just like they, they didn't want her driving under the 10. <laughs> right. I mean, it didn't, uh, it didn't particularly take me out. It was just sort of... Anytime I'm, I'm watching a movie that's set in L.A. and I'm like, the 110 doesn't cross the 118. That's ridiculous. Like, eh, I sort of let it go as it's a movie and I understand that most people don't live here so most people don't know the geography and so I just let it go. Um, so it, 
But yeah. it, it bumped me, but I also forgave it immediately. Yeah, I think I maybe... Unlike the wife who didn't forgive right. that. <laughs> you can never forgive him for that. Um, I think it was a minor footnote for me, gotcha. but along with the kind of changing looks, it was one of the things that every few minutes I'd go, well... So the number of them did add up a little. Overall, I think that the storyline and the acting really overcame that, though. And even as much as I liked the performance and the characters or everything that drew me in, I think some of the storyline we mentioned did come across as just cliched at this point because we know movies like, again, A Star is Born or Sunset Boulevard that have done it. So when she's buying his things or they're buying them at the auction, I kind of figured it was her anyway. Her buying all the stuff, I saw that coming and I sort of was okay with that. But then later on, when he finds uh, all of his memorabilia in her house and he flips out, I didn't understand. I was like, I think uh, you made a joke about her being a stalker, but I was like, I don't think that's what he's reacting well, to. Well, no, I think that was the uh, the one the way I read it when he first walked into his dressing room and saw her there. I was like, you know, modern day, you'd be like stalker. Uh, and then seeing all the stuff that she bought of his would really drive that home, that even though she's rich and successful now, she's still obsessed with you and crazy. But uh, he, the way they portrayed it with him was that his ego was hurt because she was pitying him and giving him charity, and he was so proud that he couldn't accept it. Like, But he was not reacting like... Uh, he, I did not read his expression in his performance as... This has wounded my ego. He looked like they kept cutting to the to the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil monkeys right. that you were talking about. Like it looked like a horror movie. Like it looked no. like it was stalker. I was esque. I but felt that, like he was gonna bust out another match and be like burning all of this too <laughs> with him in it. Try again. When he stormed out, I literally thought, "I'll show her. I'm gonna commit suicide real good this time." And, <laughs> and I that's was what half joking to myself, but no, he instantly went home and uh, got a gun, and I was like. Oh, wow, yeah, we are going there. I think his ego or pride really was a big driving force for a lot of the actions, and it didn't come across in the performance as much. It, yeah, so it was just maybe a, bizarre to me. Maybe a harder thing to portray without words, because we see him, you know, being the toast of Tinseltown in the beginning, and then we are aware, like, yes, his movies aren't doing well, but... I think we, as people with a lot less ego than that, just read, with, like, take the part she's offering you. What What's the problem? Whereas in a movie like A Star is Born with Judy Garland, James Mason, he's a has-been washed-up actor, and she's the rising star at that point. They're married, and he has uh, addiction problems and things like that. He's really washed out, but she has pretty much the same scene where she asks the studio head to please put him in a part in one of her movies, and they approach him for it, and he at first is interested, but they say, oh, it's not the lead, it's a supporting, and then he gets uppity about it and rejects it, and then essentially goes out on a bender and uh, almost gets himself killed, then is recovering, and then finally actually does commit suicide. At the end of the movie is her accepting an award, and she is she has a name, she has a screen name, even though they're married, she didn't take his last name, but as she's accepting her award, he's out killing himself, and she accepts the award and says, I'm accepting this as Mrs. Norman Maine. And, like, credits him for everything since he's the one that found her. Much like the beginning of this where he says, hey, you're really good. This chorus girl, you know, should be up front with me. The point was the, the arc in that of his ego or pride getting in the way and not allowing it was a bit more nuanced. Because they were allowed to use words. <laughs> uh, 
So I think we got it a little more, whereas in this, it just is hard to come across because you're like, I wouldn't react that way. Yeah, yeah. It, it all seemed sort of overblown. And then I was, I was confused immediately after, I think we mentioned this already, was when he talks to the cop. And the cop is talking, and we don't hear, see any intertitles, and we just got to a close-up on the cop's mouth. I was like, what is he... Is he upset that he's talking? Is that what's... Uh, and then eventually I figured it out. It sort of went on for a little while. Yeah, I was going to bring that up earlier about the inner titles where that was a decided point where it was lacking because usually if they don't have them, you can figure out what they're saying. And he talks to him for like two sentences and I was like, I don't know what that exchange would be. <laughs> Where's the inner title? <laughs> Where's the inner title? And then it didn't and it went back to his mouth and then they made a point of it. I was like, oh, is this like the nightmare sequence where he now can't hear He's gone crazy and, like, can't hear? Or is the first line of dialogue in this movie going to be him saying, what are you saying? And I thought it was going to be this, you know, glass-shattering moment where we can now hear. But neither of those things happen, and he runs off. And it's a, not really explained. Yeah, it was... I, I believe the point they were trying to get at, which is not... It, it's hard to express, was that he is upset at the dependency on words and that he is no longer has a place in this world where they now use words in movies. Yeah, and they hammer that home with the, they think they do the disembodied voices, or disembodied yeah, Not voices, mouths, yeah. <laughs> Lack of voices, mouth, uh, talking around him, and it kind of shows his spiraling into insanity. Suicide. Yeah, I mean, oh, by the way, you mentioned the nightmare sequence. I don't think we went over that. That was actually uh, an amazing tour de force of sound design I feel like the sound designer had an easy job on this one. <laughs> right. uh, but, like, he sets the glass down, we hear it, and everybody definitely, like, the, the theater just went quiet. We were like, wait a second. Yeah. And, and and then we start, you start adding sounds, and it gets too loud. And then you're like, wait, is this movie suddenly becoming a sound movie? Yeah, I thought it was going to have a Wizard of Oz-style door opening to a world of sound, uh, and then... Didn't. It turns into just wind rushing across the street. Yeah, he walks outside, and then it becomes, like, even the sounds that had been playing from outside, the voices and everything are gone, and it's wind rushing against empty street, and I, it made me think, actually, the sound design just dropped out, and now it sounds like a bad student film, <laughs> where it's like, oh, it's so desolate. Let's just have one thing, just wind, a wind sound effect here, and it always reads as, you know, there's more things that go on. <laughs> than just one thing. But right. at that point I started, I was like, oh, I think this is a dream sequence. I was I was like on the fence and then they cut to the girl and then they cut and there's three girls and I was like, okay. Yeah, they're and they're laughing game. at him in loud, loud. Yeah, and so I was like, ah, he's dreaming about the sound. And then one criticism I had about that whole sequence was the feather starts falling and I'm like, ah, that feather's going to be so loud when it lands. Cut to him watching it. Cut back to the feather. Cut back to him watching it. And I'm like, I know what you're. you're I know what's going to, to happen. Yeah, see where this is going. I yeah. Get there. Already. Let's get to the thing, and then and then it lands and it makes a loud noise. And I was like, I was there two minutes ago. Cut to the chase, as it were. Yeah. So that that one, I don't know that the timing of that was like. Eh, Feathers nice. take a while to fall. I actually, <laughs> unless you're in a vacuum, at which point it falls the same speed as the penny. Right. Exactly. Um, I was actually waiting for the uh, Forrest Gump piano trill to come in. <laughs> it was a black feather. Oh, okay. They... As I was watching it, I was like, I wonder if they used the black feather because they didn't want us to think of Forrest Gump. <laughs> and it didn't work because right. we still thought of Forrest Gump. Well, Another uh, instance, sort of the inverse of the sound design, was uh, he's getting ready to commit suicide. Like, he's already trying to commit suicide. He gets recovered. And then the ego blow to finding out that she's been supporting him by buying his stuff. He decides he's going to kill himself, puts the gun in his mouth, 
cut to the inner title that says bang. <laughs> that, I thought, was very powerful when I thought he actually shot himself. I was like, oh my god, are we just going to credits now? <laughs> that would be crazy. Or I thought they were going that was gonna be the one sound like that really just they played blaring volume through all the channels and then they go to credits and it was gonna be like right. ouch. But they uh the car had been crashed, yeah. I almost thought that it was a prop gun that like she was gonna run in and be like, Don't kill yourself and he was like, I was it was fake, like I was just... What would be the point of that? There's no one else in the room but the dog. I thought he was going through sort of the motion, like, because he's an actor. Like, I thought he was going to say... Emote it. He was going through the motions to sort of cleanse himself of that feeling. Narcissist and be like, oh, there. Yeah, that's what I thought he was going to experience the suicide. I don't know that psychoanalytics was that advanced at that point where (laughs) he's like, I'm going to uh, do some role-playing therapy on myself. Um, I don't know. It just sort of seemed like something they might do. But instead, I mean, honestly... I was a little surprised. A car, he's his finger is on the trigger. A car crashes outside, like just a little jerk. Like he pulled the trigger and accidentally shoot himself. Right. Even if he was curious, like that's a little surprising uh, that he managed to uh, hold it together long enough. I'm intending to shoot myself, but I'm not going to accidentally shoot. <laughs> yeah, I think that they handled it in a good because way. they cut to her. Like yeah, well yeah. the whole sequence because. I thought they were going to go very dark and just kind of demythologize the the genre of the period because it it played up to that point like a classical film, and then to end on something that dark would be very modernist of reinventing kind of the genre of playing it by note the rest of the time, but like Chinatown where they do a detective story, but then in the end the good guy doesn't win, you know. So I thought, wow, that would be a very modernist twist. To this and nothing else has suggested that. But it would also be very unsatisfying. <laughs> I thought it would be interesting. I I don't know if I'd be satisfied so much as intrigued or floored. Maybe when I walked out, uh, it would give people something to talk about. But uh, the way they did go with it, I think, still didn't have the cheekiness of having it as a prop gun, which wouldn't really be believable in the yeah, story. Yeah, maybe it didn't make sense at all. But it's just the thought that I had. I thought he was going to hide it, and she was going to come in, and he was going to play it off in some other way. But she comes in and, and sees it, and her seeing the gun and understanding was enough to serve or make pay out on the gravitas of the situation and do it without having a kind of cheesy way out. They do have him then accidentally fire the gun and the dog falls over, so there's a bit of tension-breaking comedy there. And that didn't. That also didn't come across as cheesy. So they, they built up the tension, recognized it, and then alleviated it in a very good way, I felt. Yeah, no, it was definitely... Uh, I think it was probably the perfect way of, of getting out of that situation. Like, he is at the lowest point you can get, and then they rescue him from it. And, and it didn't feel cheap or easy at all. Um, so I, I feel like they had the best of both worlds in terms of uh, seeing how far they could take it and then still having the happy ending. Yeah, and choices like that are really what propel the movie into kind of an upper strata for me. Yeah, it's it's not simply a homage to classic Hollywood. Like It is also a, a, a good story in and of itself, except for the wife's life. <laughs> <laughs> right, and for the ending, I was wondering how they were going to wrap it up because he clearly has to come back on his own. I didn't think they were going to try and get into a dialogue heavy scene of her saying, let me help you. And him saying, I can't because of this, because that would be a lot of inner titles. Um, so 
the resolution they come to of them dancing together, we had set up even as early as the premiere, the first scene where he's on stage and dancing, her and him dancing together on the set, and really, in the wow, end, he was married, by the way. <laughs> yeah, how and everyone knows that dancing means sex. So that's what it represents. <laughs> what you saw in your mind was them boning on the set in front of all those grips and people, right? That's, that's all what you were they thinking. Did we already brought up Chaplin, twelve year old, like it's not outside the realm. I will give you that, but I'm just saying you're perverted, and we're picturing them having sex. And we're like, oh, she drank coffee. That was code in the twenties. Um, so they wrap it up in a very smart way of having them again go back to the dancing we already established and essentially inventing musicals which right i didn't really recognize uh until they were actually on the sound stage that i was like oh yeah they would not this would have been like the first ones you know right they couldn't have done this in his day and age because i so often think of actors as the back then had to be the triple threat of acting singing tap dancing like if you couldn't do all three of those in the 30s or something <laughs> what are you even doing in town which actually brings me to a weird thing i never really thought about before in terms of silent films and silent film acting why do we have this nostalgia for this period of time when actors didn't have to talk like there's been a number of movies this singing in the rain others we've all heard stories of actors losing their jobs because they had an annoying squeaky voice but in the entire history of acting, from when Thespis stepped out from the chorus 4,000 years ago or whatever it was, every actor has had to talk, except for the period from 1898 to 1927. Every other actor has had to talk. These guys just, they were lucky that they, even though they had an annoying voice, they happened to become an actor at the time period when an annoying voice was not a detriment. Like, yeah, I think it resonates especially with Americans because they took our jobs! <laughs> uh, we hate losing jobs. Is what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, I think there were probably instances, although they were probably equally as niche in terms of time period, where in the history of acting, like Commedia dell'arte and things, or pantomime, where it was more about the setting or evoking or your sure. body. But I agree with you that, in large part, all modern theater, yes, the actors could talk and everything. So I don't know why we have this nostalgia, <laughs> but I also don't know why there's a nostalgia for the Old West when it was like the 1860s to 1875 or by <laughs> the late 1870s, it was like, no, the railroad came out. And then by like the 1890s, like we have cars and uh, the Lumiere brothers over here. What are you doing <laughs> thinking you can point a gun and rob a stagecoach? <laughs> Get with the times, guy. So it is weird when you're a kid and you watch Westerns, you're like, oh, this must have been like. For 300 years, there's people yeah. riding on horses. It's a 30-year period, Or the, the, even pirates, for as much as people like. The Golden Age of Sail, when they had to go around the Horn of South America, or Horn of Africa, and places to ship things, because there was no way across the U.S. to bring these goods. So we had to ship everything from New York around South America to the West Coast. And then it, I think that was a maybe 20-year period. <laughs> and it was like, oh, wow. No, we got a railroad now. <laughs> you guys are out of work, and then the Panama Canal, even, you know, for industrial shipping, like, so, as much as there is the love of pirates or cowboys, uh, those were very brief windows. Yeah. It's uh, sticky. People like the iconography. It's an, it's, a, it's an interesting, you're right, that's an interesting parallel. At, so we reach the end, and we finally get sound. They start tap dancing, and we hear the tap dancing, and this is the too much film school in me. The whole time I was watching them dance, I was like... Did they record that live, or did they have a Foley guy going with every little tap? Because the whole point is, 
like you see on the stage, there's even a giant microphone recording everything. And I'm like, I don't know if that's live. (laughs) They might have foleyed that. And uh, which contradicts the entire point of like, oh, this is an advance. And now we we record sound for movies. And I was like, that's weird. (laughs) I did not think that. But I did think uh, they ended a shot too late. Similar to your Girl with a Dragon Tattoo criticism, in that they're doing this large uh, musical number and tap dancing and everything. I was like, oh, wow, they pretty much started musicals, and this is going to go on for, you know, another decade or more, uh, at least. So he's back on top, at least for now. It was nest crushing. Whoa, then he tries to commit suicide again. Right, but it was heartwarming and uh, triumphant at the end. And then they, they tap like crazy, and then we hear them breathing, and it's the fir- first indication I, I really- got. I well, really thought that was going to be the end, yeah. I I didn't catch the tapping so much, because I was like, yeah, it's a sound effect. It's not them talking or anything, but the breathing was a came up real heavy towards the end. So I was like, oh, they're going to say something. And I thought it was going to be tap, 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 big finale, them breathing. And I thought his line was going to be, how was that? And then cut to black and credits and, like, music. And that was a, really a punchy kind of one use of a line in the movie. And instead they go cut and then it shows john goodman he says something he asked for another take yeah he says that was great can we get one more and john duhardine says with pleasure and it's funny because he has an accent because the real actor is french right. and we we were imagining him with That's an american very, very accent funny. the whole yeah. time it's not clear like i wondered was there a subplot the entire time that i didn't know that part of the reason he couldn't be a talky actor was that he had an accent and they wouldn't have put up with that? I imagine so. I mean, I don't think that Americans at that time were really enamored with foreigners and people. So having imagined him in all his silent roles as an American to then hear him speak might have been a shock too much to bear for them. But I felt like even with that line, they could have cut to black and had a really impactful moment. But instead they pull out and the camera's booming out through the ceiling and we see them setting and returning to one and then they do sound rolling and then I think they actually cut on action which was humorous to hear they had to do sound speed which right. they hadn't up to that point because there was no sound and then the fact that they cut on action is the inverse so I smirked at that but I felt it would have been much more impactful if at the end of the dance number panting out of breath he gave a line and we just cut on that it might have just been that that's sort of the obvious choice so the fact that they went on a little longer i honestly thought they were going to cut on roll sound but uh that, that didn't work out that worked so uh, apparently we weren't in the editing room is what we're yeah. saying <laughs> i did note my my wife even noticed this is not even gone to film school she noticed that the slates didn't have clappers on them and she was like that's because they don't have to sync sound and i was like that's right uh, but in the last uh, sequence, they still had slates without clappers, and I was like, hmm, that's weird. They also had 15 <laughs> slates. Was there a... Yeah, I mean, that, that was part of? of the... No, no, I think that was part of the musical number. Okay. Like, whatever that film was they were making camera. was a film within a film, I think. One other minor thing, since we're on the subject of clappers, uh, while he's making his expensive movie that ends up like being a, fl- a flop, he holds the slate... Not just, like, he holds it on the first take, and I'm like, yeah, the guy would do that. But he holds it in a number of shots. And I was like, that is neither the director's job nor the actor's job. There is a guy who, in England, is called the clapper loader. And uh, in America, we just call him a, a second AC. Uh, who would hold that. And I was like, whenever you see filming being depicted in a movie, they seem to think that the only people involved are the producer, the director, and the actors. Occasionally a writer. Right. But they don't acknowledge that there's a- other crew I'm going to go ahead and say they didn't want to hire an extra to be an 
AC in the film within the film. But it's see, just that's, easier. That's you know, the maybe. odd thing is that they they did occasionally show the first AC taking the tape measure and walking from the camera to the actress. So the first, they were willing to pay an extra to be a first AC, right. but not a second AC. Well, also maybe he's doing this with his own budget. We see him writing checks. Oh, so maybe. he just didn't have a he loader. Did. Yeah, he's like, I can do it. In between takes and directing. It's possible. There you go. And it's just demonstrating that it's that a limited budget. Right. <laughs> and then he films for it. This is actually another odd thing. His film, it, it ends up shooting for 70 days. And we know that that's a long time, especially right. for that time period. I don't know if my mom watched this and she would realize, 70 days, maybe it takes that long to make a movie. Like, there's nothing to tell you that that is a long period of time if you don't just know that. I think the nature of the montage tries to do that. The number of times they show them ripping out checks and then the quickening of the shots. Like, usually you expect, oh, we'll show one, two, three, maybe four, and then we're out. But the fact that it gets quicker towards the end and more of them. That's true. The pacing does convey so, long yeah. time. But I was going to say, even so... Um, yeah, at that time, they were making movies in a week at the <laughs> studio system or something. I had, uh, overall, the film is certainly fun to watch. Um, I don't know how much fun it is for someone who's not into filmmaking in and of itself. Uh, so I don't know how to recommend this movie. If you're a, you know, a film student or like you work in the industry, you've probably already heard of this and you've probably already seen the movie. So my recommendation doesn't doesn't carry weight one way or the other. We also told people not to listen to this if they <laughs> hadn't seen the movie, so... That's an odd, odd thing as well. Um, I don't... It, this movie is is for people that make movies. Or love movies. Or, or are super into movies. And not for anyone else. Uh, the, the the love plot uh, irked me, and I, and I feel like that uh, element makes it... There are other movies like... Uh, Jerry Maguire, which is about, not exactly Hollywood, but it's about, like, sort of show business type stuff, and the love story carries it through, so even if you've never worked in sports and entertainment and stuff, you still like that movie. This, I don't think it, it, it would uh, carry over to a mainstream audience in any sort of meaningful way. I think a lot of American viewers of the Midwest and people that don't like movies about movies or intellectualism and things like that definitely won't like it, but... I don't know that it is only restricted to people that went to film school or even that love and know the history of film. I think some of the points carry over enough to be interesting character moments that we talked about, but even some of the areas where it's a little flatter might just be quirky in a, oh, there's, this is different than other movies. So I think a lot of people will like it, and I think it's a great movie. A lot of people who aren't film school graduates will still really like the story. If you didn't go to film school and you saw this movie, drop us an email and let us know what you thought about it. At too much film school at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.